0: to the Alpegeta podcast. My name is Dylan Handel. and I am James Mwenda and uh, in this podcast series we'll be hosting you as we get to listen to stories that happen around Alpegeta Conservancy and the bigger conservation space.
1: We'll be interacting with people on the front lines and bringing you unheard stories, some of which you miss on your visit with us. These stories will range from rangers, communities surrounding Alpegeta, as well as other stakeholders that have committed their lives to the success of Olpegeta's conservation mission.
0: It's
1: a very sunny morning today, and the sun is high up and the birds are chirping the trees. This is actually a typical day and a weather condition in Olpegeta conservation, right? And yeah, it would be a perfect day for a safari or sure. some volunteer experiences here.
0: Yeah. So where are we going today, Jenny?
1: So today we will be talking to Richard Vine, who is our managing director. Yeah. And uh, we'll be asking him a few questions from the managerial aspects of running a successful conservancy like Operator Conservancy, mm-hmm. but also the vision and the plans that he has for Operator Conservancy. And He's been here for a very long time, so he's the best first person to begin the podcast with. To begin the podcast with. So, sure. what do you think is one of the questions that you would want to ask him?
0: Is it, apart from knowing him as a person, I want to know more of what all budget is about. So, I hope he'll delve into that, and uh, maybe his personal life before being a managing director.
1: Yeah, sure. I'm really excited for this, and I hope your listeners well, with rails, So I've, we actu-
0: I've actually seen him. So I think we should head
1: into his office. Yeah, let's go and quickly set up in his office and start the interview.
0: OK. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of The Open Data Point. We are sitting with the Managing Director of Open Data Conservancy, Richard Pine. <coughs>
1: Thank you so much, Richard, for joining us and taking time off your busy schedule to join us for the very first All Predator podcast. We're looking forward to having a conversation, that so many of our followers who want to know all about Predator Conservancy, and there's no one better to tell the story of Predator than you. Having been here for 20 plus years, you've seen Predator grow from what it was, transitioning it to be one of the leading conservancies in Eastern Central Africa. Thank you so much. It's a
0: pleasure. Uh, to begin, can you take us at what, with what role does and managing director do at a conservation? Of course. So as a managing director, you are ultimately responsible for,
2: for everything that happens on the conservancy. So um, uh, that means you're accountable for the financial situation, you're accountable for the policy environment, the governance environment, you're responsible for developing new um, new projects, new commercial revenue streams, you're responsible for all of the staff, you're responsible for the integrity of the organization, you're responsible for everything that goes into making the organization the success that we all hope it will be. Um, so, so it's a position of um, how can I put it, uh, final accountability, um, sits with the managing director. So when uh, things go wrong, the managing director is ultimately the person who is held to account. Um, so so that, that is the job. Um, no, no different from any managing director of any organization anywhere in the world.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, can you trace for us, how did you find yourself in the conservation space?
2: Conservation has always been in my blood. I was born and brought up in Karicho in Western Kenya, and I spent all my life either fishing in the forests or catching butterflies. I had one of the biggest, most comprehensive butterfly collections in Kenya at the time, and it ended up being donated to the National Museum. Um, So um, I was always intrigued by the natural world. I did biological science Uh, or at least I I did A-levels at secondary school in sciences. I then did a degree in zoology. I then worked in Uganda for about five years in the safari, as a small partner in a safari business. Um, Again, traveling across Uganda and what was then known as Zaire, now referred to as the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, looking at gorillas and... and, um, that, that business, unfortunately, off the back of the Rwanda crisis in 1994 went bust. So I went back to the UK and did an MBA okay. um, specializing in agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was lucky enough to be offered the job of general manager for a place called Olpegeta Ranch. Mm-hmm. So when I came here, um, the place was almost, it was pretty much bust. I wouldn't say bust, but it was in, in the cattle herds had been run down to very low numbers none of the infrastructure was working particularly sweet waters game reserve had been set up i think there were 23 or 24 rhinos in sweetwaters at the time Um, the camp the only camp was the sweetwaters camp which i think if i remember correctly had 30 beds Um, and tourism was a small part of the bigger kind of ranching ranching operation At that time we were doing what was known as consumptive game utilization for meat and for skins primarily zebras but also other species so it was a very different place that i came to all those years ago compared to what it has become um today
0: uh can you take us through the transitions you've said it started as uh you're using skins of wild animals Mm. And right now, that isn't happening. Mm. Well, how did you transition from then? But well, it was very interesting. So it became very
2: obvious to me that, well, the first thing is that um, when I first came here, I recognized that there was a, a huge conservation opportunity. I also recognized the fact that I was only 28 years old at the time, and I was in charge of this ginormous place. Mm-hmm. But I also recognized that if I was going to stay here, then I would have to find a way of making it profitable and successful. And it occurred to me that tourism was probably a big opportunity, that cattle ranching was a marginal activity due primarily to competition from wildlife, um, and that things probably needed to change. And it took me quite a while to work out what those changes would be. It would have to be in order to make the place successful. Mm-hmm. But eventually we were able to, uh, we put together with some other people, we, we put together a consortium of people um, including a guy called John Stryker from the Arcus Foundation mm-hmm. together with Fauna Flora International and the Malewa Wildlife Conservancy um, came together to to, to to purchase Old Pejeta for the purposes of conservation mm-hmm. and with a little bit of investment capital that was quite a lot of investment capital that was provided by John Stryker um, through the Arcus Foundation we were able to create the Olpegetek Conservancy, which meant basically extending the Sweetwaters Game Reserve, mm-hmm. which was then 22,000 acres, mm-hmm. um, uh, across uh, a large part of what was then referred to as the ranch, mm-hmm. to incorporate a further 50,000 acres approximately mm-hmm. into what is now the old Olpegetek Conservancy. That provided more habitat for wildlife, mm-hmm. it also provided more opportunity for tourism, um, but at the time, we decided that we would keep our cattle operation and that we would integrate our cattle operation with wildlife and with tourism, in order to maximise the productivity and profitability of the of the conservancy. Um, we didn't want to rely on philanthropic revenues. We wanted as much as possible to develop commercial revenue streams that were compatible with conservation, that allowed us um, to demonstrate that. that, 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 that um, conservation could, in fact, be a profitable activity. Um, The thinking being that if it was profitable, many other people would do it, and therefore that would be a good thing for for, 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 for for, 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 for conservation as a whole. So so we created the conservancy, the rhino population is now 180, Mm -hmm. um, with the biggest black rhino sanctuary in Eastern Central Africa. We've shown that an integrated approach to land management is possible, so whilst um whilst we so we've successfully incorporated cattle ranching as part of the overall land use strategy, and that is a major contributor to our to our to our to our, to our revenues. Um, we now have I think it's ten camps, um, uh, dotted across the conservancy, You're all pitched at different levels of the marketplace. Um, we I think received in twenty nineteen, prior to COVID somewhere in the region of 115,000 visitors through our gates, of which over 50% were local Kenyans. Mm -hmm. So we've become a successful conservancy from a conservation perspective. Um, We're becoming more and more successful pre-COVID, but hopefully things will eventually return to normal Mm -hmm. uh, from a commercial perspective. And we've created a model for land use, uh, which is integrated, and which, um, which, um, which other people are increasingly... Starting to replicate uh, in particular across the Lycopia conservation space. So, we've become an engine for conservation and development. And attached to all of that has been the notion that we must keep, um, we must make sure that the communities that live around us also benefit from our presence. Yeah. So, we spend plus or minus a million dollars a year um, supporting those uh, communities from a development and um, social perspective. So we're invested in schools, we're invested in support to education, support to health services, support to road building and um, rural access mm-hmm. to agricultural extension and uh, in various other um, other areas and we, 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 do, we do that as much as we can in collaboration with others mm-hmm. including the county government and so we've become not only a, uh, uh, an important conservation organization but also um, we've demonstrated how conservation can also con- contribute to rural development, um, okay. and for us that's, that's a really important part of
1: the model. Uh, definitely, and i um, sure now Pejeta employs over 700 people, which is such a large number. Which is people. more if you
2: add up all, that's all Pejeta by mm-hmm. itself, but if you add up all of the other um, the tourism partners, the people operating camps, mm-hmm. if you add Lengetia who mm-hmm. Um, we're in partnership with, from an arable farming perspective, mm-hmm. if you add the our Kenya wildlife estate is over a thousand people. Mm-hmm. And so actually we're responsible for the employment of, of over a thousand people.
1: Definitely. And I, and I think when we talk of community, I think uh, for the success that our project has had in terms of conservation, it's definitely uh, because of community. I mean, maybe someone listening to us would want to know what is the criteria that we use to determine how to support communities because these things vary. Some communities are nomadic pastoralists, others are farmers. So maybe mm-hmm. you can delve into that. Of course. Of it. Um, so initially, we said that we would help any community
2: that lived within a five-kilometer radius of the conservancy. Mm-hmm. But that proved to be, um, you know, that that just uh, that, that 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 was a um, a simplistic way mm-hmm. of um, trying to determine who we would uh, support mm-hmm. amongst those people living around us. Since that time, we have, together with the local administration, demarcated mm-hmm. uh, community areas, mm-hmm. um, and within each of those those community areas around the boundaries of Old Pejeta, mm-hmm. um we have instituted a system whereby those communities themselves mm-hmm. elect community representatives. Mm-hmm. And those, those elections are held on a regular basis to ensure um, proper rotation, um, and the opportunity for people to choose different um, representatives if they would like.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We, um, we, um, then th- so, so, so those representatives then form the key interface between that particular community and the Conservancy. Mm-hmm. And it's on that basis that we determine what support um, we um, provide to that particular community. Mm-hmm. Within the broad umbrella of those areas which we feel to be important. Mm-hmm. And those areas are determined primarily by what is referred to as um what is referred to as the SAPA process. Mm-hmm. SAPA stands for the social assessment of protected areas. Mm-hmm. It was a tool that was developed, developed by one of our or together with one of our partners called Fauna and Flora International, FFI mm-hmm. and that tool allows us to carry out regular service as uh, so a regular surveys amongst the people who live in the communities around us Mm -hmm. to assess what our impact is Mm -hmm. um, and also what those communities would like to see from us in terms of the support that we're able to provide them. Mm -hmm. And those surveys are carried out once every two or three years, Mm -hmm. and it's on the basis of the results of those surveys that we're able to determine accurately how best to apply our community development effort. So we like to think it's a very bottom-up approach, Mm -hmm. but the key point that everybody needs to understand is that, well, two things. Number one, if in, in conservation, conservation is often more about people than it is about animals. Animals will look after themselves if they're given habitat and protection, yeah. um, but without the support of people, without the support of those people living around us, we wouldn't be able to provide that habitat or protection. So it's mm-hmm. fundamentally important. The second thing is, and this is this is um, slightly slightly more nuanced. The, um, the, the we are proving that conservation can be an engine for development, for sustainable, um, um, environmentally-friendly development. Mm -hmm. And if that can be shown to be the case, Mm -hmm. um, then of course, um, conservancies as a conduit for development money and for development effort um, become more
0: and more important. Mm -hmm. And that in turn has got to be good for conservation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely, you pointed out, there's a term that people had put up fortress conservation where you are the cutting off people from protected areas mm. uh, you've mentioned it's not viable uh if it's not viable how does the community apart from us empowering them and telling them they can conser- help us conserve wildlife mm. how is it benefiting them um
2: well sorry when you say if it's not so uh, to, for, fortress conservation. Yeah so fortress conservation why well, what I refer to national the national parks model that was developed in the 30s 40s and 50s yeah um, in Kenya was was all about you know this is going to be a national park humans are not permitted inside that national park and unless they are high-paying tourists um, mm-hmm. staying in sophisticated lodges um, but beyond that we will have no interaction with the people living alongside or around those national parks. Mm-hmm. That's what I call fortress conservation. And it spawned the method of conservation which was entirely preservationist in its approach. We will preserve this area for the sake of its preservation, mm-hmm. for, the, for the sake of preserving the animals that live within it. And, you know, it was fine in those days because there was plenty of spare land available. Mm-hmm. Human populations were much, much lower. Mm-hmm. The pressure upon land as a resource was therefore much less. Mm-hmm. Nowadays we're living in a different world, we're living in a world where we want to see conservation persist, where we want to see biodiversity achieved, or the maintenance of biodiversity achieved, but we are, um, there, there's increasing pressure upon habitat from increasing human populations, so mm-hmm. the, 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 the question that we have to ask ourselves is how do we square the circle of providing people with livelihoods at the same time as maintaining conservation space, and the opportunity for biodiversity. And that's where I think our model is important. Our model um, our model doesn't exclude people, it does its best to include people, mm-hmm. it does its best to develop um, as much employment, and productivity, and profitability, and um, taxable revenues as it possibly can, um, as well as helping people around its boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, it maintains conservation space, as evidenced by the fact that we're the biggest black rhino sanctuary in eastern central Africa. So for me that's the future of conservation. Mm-hmm. It's not to the exclusion of humans, it's with the inclusion of humans in a manner that is sustainable, properly managed and controlled. Um, and, and, um, and if I'm right mm-hmm. then, you know, the, the, well, what for me is fascinating is the, the emergence of 160 conservancies now mm-hmm. across Kenya, many of which, most of which, are not privately owned, but are owned by communities. That, for me, is a signal that our model is working and that it's uh, it's seen, it's recognised, even in law, as something which is um, something which is really important.
1: Uh-huh. I think, alluding to what you've said, our predator being the largest black rhino sanctuary, uh, we know we now have surplus rhinos that needs relocation somewhere. Mm. So. Where do we see your predator in the next 10, 15 years from
2: now? It's a very interesting question. Um, So we are now reaching carrying capacity for rhinos, as you have pointed out, black rhinos. Mm -hmm. If we don't find more space for those rhinos to move into, Mm -hmm. then the rate of population growth will will start to slow down. Mm -hmm. And clearly, from a national perspective, we don't want that given the endangered status of black rhinos, not only in Kenya, but across Africa. Mm -hmm. So finding more space is critically important. Securing that space is expensive. Mm -hmm. Plus, as I have mentioned earlier, finding that space is difficult. So right now we're working with a neighbouring ranch, which is owned by the government. We've created uh, the Mutara Conservation Area. Mm -hmm. That is almost on the point of being ready to receive rhinos. Mm -hmm. Um, That would be enough to accommodate probably 20 or 30 maybe 40 black rhinos. It's excellent habitat for rhinos. Mm-hmm. Um, and thereafter, we would like to think about moving further and further northwards as the, the black rhino population expands. Mm-hmm. But importantly, we would do that, we would only be able to do that following the model that has been developed by Old In other words, we're not, we're not pursuing the route of fortress conservation to secure those rhino populations. Mm-hmm. Whilst they have to be secured, we would want to do it at the same time as creating economic opportunity for the communities that live around those areas. That for me is fundamentally important. Mm-hmm. Creation of jobs, but also creation of benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so 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 following the model of Olpegita, I think I think that's one of the key areas that we'll be looking at over the next ten years. Mm-hmm. And certainly there is support from government and from the various different different agencies for, for, for exactly that mm-hmm. purpose. But also I think Olpegita now as a prominent conservancy in Laikipia, has a bigger role to play across the entire landscape. Mm. What I mean by that is we are, the, the success of Laikipia f- um, from the perspective of it remaining as a conservation space with the second biggest uh, population of elephants in Kenya with 56% of all the rhinos in Kenya with most of the grevy zebra that remain in the world mm. all sitting in Laikipia. That, that space is the, 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 main, the maintenance and, and, and the the long-term success of Laikipia as a landscape is, is really important to oil pecheter mm-hmm. so we need to find a way of supporting that making sure that that happens mm-hmm. and the way we will do that is by lending weight and resources to the creation of an institution called the Laikipia Conservancies Association mm-hmm. which will be the institution that supports um, the maintenance of Laikipia as a whole mm-hmm. from a conservation perspective but also as an engine for economic development.
0: Uh, since you mentioned that we work closely with neighbouring conservatives are we also working with other conservation partners and spaces overseas of course so we um, we
2: uh, we can't do all of this on our own you know OPEGETA by itself as a standalone entity pre-COVID was commercially successful so you know we didn't really to to, to manage and maintain and develop OPEGETA we we don't really need or well, it's not it's not imperative that we have kind of philanthropic support mm-hmm. however Old Petita's role as I've explained is far bigger than just Old Petita by itself mm-hmm. we need to create new landscapes that can accommodate rhinos that's expensive we need to manage those rhinos when they move into those new spaces that we've created and most importantly we need to be the leading conservancy in terms of creating supporting and resourcing Um, the Laikipia Conservancies Association which has 22 members now um, across the Laikipia landscape with a view to making sure that that landscape that that conservation landscape remains into perpetuity so that really is an important role that we have to now now begin to play and that's going to take significant resources I'm talking many many millions of dollars and those millions of dollars will have to be raised from philanthropic or development sources and that demands that we have relationships with uh, organizations from across the planet, which is currently the case. Mm-hmm. These are relationships that we've developed over many years.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think um, I think delving out to a different slightly, you know, technology is advancing as time goes by. And I think Olpegeta, to be able to continue doing the amazing work it does, it has to seize the opportunity that comes with technology. How is Olpegeta responding to that? So
2: we've set up our own technology conservation, mm-hmm. uh, conservation tech lab and the whole idea of that lab again is supported by some of our partners, mm-hmm. in particular FFI, mm-hmm. is to um, look at new and emerging applied technologies um, that are being developed across the conservation space with a view to making us more efficient at what we do mm-hmm. and hopefully in the longer term cutting the costs of managing conservation land. You and I know how expensive it is to look after and to secure rhino populations. But there may mm-hmm. be tech-related or or tech-led ways of making that cheaper and more effective. Mm-hmm. So those are the areas that we need to be looking into. But there's another area as well that I think people are beginning to recognize slowly, is, uh, and that is the use of tech mm-hmm. to better monetize conservation. Mm-hmm. There are opportunities out there where we could apply tech to make more money from tourism, mm-hmm. uh, to make more money from people who are wishing to support us across the planet. If you cast your mind back 10 or 15 years ago, the idea that somebody in New York could donate $10 to Olpegeta on a monthly basis and that money would be received almost instantly in the bank account of Olpegeta would be something that you could hardly even mm-hmm. contemplate. Yeah. Now it's it's normal. Mm-hmm. So th- those are the areas we also need to be looking into. It's not just how do you use tech to better look after wildlife and and. and, and wildlife habitat it's also how do you how do you how does one use tech to bring more revenue and resource Mm -hmm. to the conservation sector
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, how do we use natural methods or approaches also to bring revenue to the conservation sector you have an mba Mm -hmm. in agricultural management Mm -hmm. how does that come in play with? the model that the conservancy is, is using, livestock and wildlife integration. For me it's, it's very important. It's this idea yeah. that we were talking
2: about earlier. Conservation is not about creating a fortress. Conservation is about managing land, yeah. managing habitat in a way that allows wildlife and biodiversity to persist yeah. but at the same time as making it productive. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I, what do I mean by productive? I mean it employs people, mm-hmm. it pays w- wages, yeah. it um, earns a profit, which in turn pays, pays taxes to the national exchequer. It, um, it produces food, in our case cattle, but also arable farming. So we're talking here about integrated use. But clearly that integrated use has to be managed very carefully yeah. because we can't allow the, the cattle to kind of um, supersede the conservation interests of the organisation. Mm-hmm. Similarly, um, you know, the cattle operation Will have to tolerate predation from lions. It will have to tolerate competition f- from a forage perspective from um, from from other herbivore herbivores such as zebras and buffaloes and etc. It will have to tolerate an increased level of disease amongst the cattle herds uh, because of the presence of wildlife. Mm-hmm. But our aim is not to. Is, uh, people make the mistake of thinking it's about maximising livestock profitability and productivity, or maximising tourism and and and. Um, tourism revenues, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's about making sure that everything can sit together together in, 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 in one one place. Mm-hmm. And whilst there may be compromises that each of the, our sort of commercial activities have to endure, mm-hmm. overall, per acre, we're making more money mm-hmm. and employ more people mm-hmm. and producing more than we would otherwise be producing by only having wildlife and tourism or by only having cattle. So
0: how does the integration between cattle and wildlife work? Um, it's about
2: um, it's about making sure that the cattle are that they're in, they live in the same space as the wildlife, but they're temporarily and um, they're temporarily um, separated mm-hmm. from the wildlife that would do them harm. Okay, mm-hmm. particularly predators. So as long as you can keep your cattle cattle safe at night, which we do in movable predator-proof enclosures mm-hmm. um, that are made of steel sections that can be moved easily and, and, and keep the cattle safe at night, mm-hmm. um, then uh, that, that's, that, that's the time when the predators that would otherwise be killing cattle are most active. Mm-hmm. So as long as they're in their enclosures at, at night, uh, when, when those predators are active, then for the majority of the time they'll be kept safe. So not always, we accept a level of the predation is always going to, be, is always going to happen, mm-hmm. but for the majority of the time they'll, they'll be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really about understanding how predators work, understanding um, what simple technologies we can apply to keep our cattle safe at a time when predators are likely to be most active. And that really is the, th- the, 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 key, the key to it. The second thing is, um, and this is more important, what we're also beginning to learn is that cattle actually also can be used for ecological benefit. Mm-hmm. Okay? They can be used to manage rangelands, uh, the, the, the point being is that you can tell your cattle where to go. You can guide them into the areas where you would like them to graze. You can you can do all sorts of things with cattle that you can't do with other wild herbivores. Mm-hmm. So they're a tool that we can use for ecological management. And we're beginning now to recognize that that tool is very effective in terms of creating and, and, and maintaining stable um, uh, rangelands of, 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 of high quality, which of course then benefit the wildlife. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when, when we talk about integration, well, they're not uncomfortable bedfellows mm-hmm. all of the time. Sometimes there are real areas of integration which benefit both sides.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, great. Um, I think slightly something different now. It's, it's hard to have been so successful in such a career, deciding to leave the tour industry coming to conservation. What, what do you think for someone listening to us and would want to, to join on this journey? What do you think you would have learned before you started this career that would have made you different? James, there's one thing I've learned is that we know nothing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the, older get, the, the older you get, the more you realize how little <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. Yeah. You just have to have an open mind and try things. You know, when we, no, I mean, seriously, when we. When we tried, um, when we started having, when we started uh, um, introducing the idea that we were going to mix cattle with wildlife Mm -hmm. and tourism, we were told by so many people Mm -hmm. that it was a complete load of rubbish, Mm -hmm. that it was never going to be possible, that it would never be possible to have um, wildlife uh, and tourism a successful tourism product Mm -hmm. in the presence of cattle Mm -hmm. we were told it would never be possible to have a profitable cattle business in the Mm -hmm. presence of wildlife Mm -hmm. and yet here we are yeah you know we're here where we've got all of that we've got some of the highest we've got the biggest population of black rhinos in eastern central africa we've got some of the highest predator densities of anywhere in kenya Mm -hmm. okay we've got a successful cattle operation we've got a successful tourism operation Mm -hmm. which has grown which has grown In terms of volumes, five times has grown five times um, or has doubled five times. Sorry, it's grown from 20,000 people a year when I first came. I think it was even 16,000 people to 115,000 people per annum Mm -hmm. with 10 camps instead of just one camp. So Mm -hmm. we've proven that everybody who told us it was impossible was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important point. You can't just listen to what people tell you, and you can't always believe.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: that the way things were done in the past mm-hmm. is necessarily the way things should be done in the future mm-hmm. um, and you've got to be brave enough to try different different ways of doing things which might end up being better despite people telling you mm-hmm. that you're talking rubbish mm-hmm.
1: and that it's never going to work it's yeah. matter of taking risks yeah. yeah and now because you're in this space of conservation mm-hmm. Uh, maybe someone would want to know maybe one of the daring experiences you've had with animals particularly or having lived in a up for 25 yeah, years. Any daring
2: experience? I mean, there's been a few, but, um, you know, I mean, I, I, this is the truth, but this is the way things were in those days. When we, when I first got here as a, as a cattle ranch, we used to, um, we had a zero tolerance approach to predators. So lions, in particular, if they came here and started killing cattle, we killed them. Uh We shot them. Uh Um, I'm not proud of it, particularly, but that's just the way things were. And we used to sit in a thornbush boma Uh and we used to wait for the lions to come back to the cow they'd killed, which they often did for two or three nights in a row Uh whilst they finished the carcass. Uh And it would be about 10 meters away from the lions and it was just thornbush or sometimes it was just a kind of canvas thing that we put up to hide us from the lions and we'd wait there until they came, we'd let them start feeding and then we would put on a spotlight and we would shoot them Mm -hmm. quickly. Um, But it's a very boring thing sitting in the middle of the night Mm because it was always at night but it was often wet and cold Mm -hmm. and you'd be sitting there waiting for these lions who sometimes wouldn't come. Mm -hmm. So often we'd go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember one night when we were lying in this little thornbush enclosure that we created Um, and it had an opening at the front obviously because he needed to be able to shoot the lions Mm -hmm. and it was quite a big opening. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, the lions came, we were fast asleep, we didn't hear them, Um, but the only thing I remember doing is obviously heard something, woke up and there was this huge male lion and he put his head into this this gap (laughs) and he was about this far from my (laughs) face. And I looked up and he looked at me and I looked at him and nothing really happened. Mm-hmm. and he quietly withdrew and off he
1: walked and i never saw him again <laughs> oh, wow, <laughs> wow. <laughs> definitely um and and what, what what advice would you want because so many people listening i think after covid so many people um it is proving that so many people want to know conservation aspects and what they can learn and how they can improve mm. their livelihoods towards making the planet a better place mm. if anyone wants to be in a career or maybe in a position one day like you what advice would you give
2: I think if people are interested in conservation, people have to get away from this notion that conservation only happens in certain areas like national parks. Mm-hmm. Conservation, the maintenance of biodiversity and the care of this planet mm-hmm. is a responsibility for everybody. Whether you live in a town or you live in a country or you live in the Antarctic, it mm-hmm. makes no difference. Yeah. You can reduce your consumption. Mm-hmm. We don't have to consume as much plastic. Mm-hmm. We don't have to consume as much food. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have to We don't have to have all all of the things that people want. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we can lead lead much simpler lives and probably happier lives. Mm -hmm. And you know, that that alone, if if the human race was was to do that, that alone would have a dramatic impact Mm -hmm. on the way we the 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 ability of the planet to maintain its Mm -hmm. its legacy of of biodiversity. Mm -hmm. Um, So changing individual habits um, at all levels mm-hmm. in terms of how we live our lives, I think is probably the most important thing that people can do. Getting involved in a career like this, well, mm-hmm. you just have to do the right qualifications and think a bit differently. And and, um, and one of the areas I think is going to be very important going forward is how, how we finance all of this. Mm-hmm. There's just not enough money mm-hmm. in the philanthropic world to, to pay for all of the kind of um, conservation and, and maintenance of biodiversity that, that needs to happen. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, how do you stop people chopping down the Congo rainforest? Well you've got to provide them with an alternative. Yeah. So where's that money going to come from? Where are those resources going to come from? That for me is going to be a key area. Yeah. So wildlife economics, conservation economics, mm-hmm. the financing mechanisms that we've talk, talked about with new tech. Mm-hmm. Those are going to be really important in the future.
1: Yeah, and maybe talking about that, especially last year because of COVID-19, there was a drop in terms of revenue for the Conservative Conservancy and the pandemic is still going on. So, you know, if you talk about the revenue drop, you can maybe tell people that are listening to us how we we did last year and what the future holds for us in terms of last year. Last year was a disaster from a financial perspective, Mm -hmm.
2: so tourism is 70% of our revenue. Mm we, would ex- we expect in a normal year mm-hmm. um, to, well, as, a, as an organization, including our tourism partners, we would expect a gross income of probably $10 million a year. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, that income was reduced, including our tourism partners, by about $8 million. So we had an $8 million hole mm-hmm. in our accounts, which we had to fill. Mm-hmm. And what people need to understand um, is that, you know, if you're, if you're the manager of a hotel and you've got no business, you can, you can kind of close the hotel, lay off the staff for six months mm-hmm. and come back when the tourism business is beginning to return. If you're running a conservancy, you have to keep it going. Mm-hmm. The rhinos still have to be protected. Mm-hmm. Um, so the challenge is in, in the face of massively diminished revenues from tourism, how do you keep Holt vegeta going? Mm-hmm. And we were lucky um, to be able to raise more money than we normally raise and mm-hmm. uh, we've recently developed a fundraising department as you know mm-hmm. and they've performed incredibly well and that income has managed to keep us keep us going obviously we've had to cut costs dramatically and you and I have mm-hmm. all of us have, have been have seen the impact of that we've had to take pay cuts yeah. we've had to cut fuel usage we've had to do all sorts of different things to reduce the costs of operations mm-hmm. but I think we've been quite I think the fact that we've done that at the same time as maintaining the continuity of the organisation mm-hmm. um, has been a considerable achievement mm-hmm. um, but you know we're not through this yet we've got at least another 6 to 12 months mm-hmm. before this is finished mm-hmm. even with the rollout of the vaccine internationally it's going to take 6 months before you know sufficient numbers of people particularly in the western world are are vaccinated to enable travel to start up again. Mm-hmm. So, um, unfortunately we were, you know, we just have to continue cutting costs and raising money and
0: praying. And how can you guys help us with the needs mm-hmm. that arose with covid hit? I
2: mean, you know, as I said, we've got an eight million this year. We've got a, this year, um, we're anticipating tourism will begin to recover in July. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We don't know that that's necessarily 100% going to be the case. But even with that recovery, we're expecting our tourism revenues to be somewhere in the region of 40% of what they would have been in 2019 Mm -hmm. when tourism was going well pre-COVID. So we've still got a big hole to fill. So there's two things we need. We need people to travel as Mm -hmm. soon as they're able Mm -hmm. um, to come and visit, to come and see us. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously anybody who comes is incredibly welcome. Mm-hmm. We have a fantastic wildlife product, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So so that's one thing. And the other thing is if people can't travel, we need support, um, financial support. And, it can, you know, the thing about financial support is it can, be, it can be £10 a month or even £5 a month. But if we get enough people doing that, we mm-hmm. can actually generate quite a lot of revenue. Yeah. Um, and given the financial... Challenges we're facing, mm-hmm. that would be an incredibly useful thing for people to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank right. So, thank you so much for taking time uh, to be with us and joining us on our podcast
0: and telling us what the
2: Conservancy is about. Yeah. Yeah. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, both of you, and keep up the good work.
0: Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. Hope you've enjoyed. If you'd wish to take part and join us in our conservation journey.
1: Yeah, you can consider donating to our conservation course. You also can directly visit us, which gives back to our conservation initiatives. You also can join our volunteer program and also consider becoming a monthly donor, um, which ensures that we have sufficient flow of funds to continue our conservation initiatives. As well as for more information you can visit our website which is www.alpegetaconservancy.org to learn of where and how you can support us. And mm-hmm. how are you can take part in this journey. Yeah. Cool. Thank, Thank you. you.